0: Well, oh, good evening, everyone, good evening. and uh, bringing greetings from Ukiah, where I was one weekend, and then Michigan last weekend, and good to be back. Uh, Realized when I got back, everybody's going on break, so, <laughs> um, but it's good to be back. And, you know, during this time of year, um, so it's a great time of family and people getting together and Thanksgiving celebrations. And I like to talk about religious liberty um, each Thanksgiving. and I've done that for, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years, maybe more, 35 years. And I'm always thinking about some theme related to religious freedom because, um, or we might say, Freedom from religion as well. Freedom of religion and freedom from religion. And uh, I think we should be able to fight for freedom of religion, and we should also fight for for those who do not want religion. Freedom from religion. One of the things I think turns people off with religion is that people try and make other people believe what they believe and force them to do something that they don't believe. And I don't think that's Christian. Do you think that's Christian? Because if you force someone to do something they don't believe, what are you forcing them to do? Lie. So you're making them lie. So um, and I think a lot of people get turned off from religion, especially if it is coupled with politics. People get confused, and they think that uh, religion is like a Republican um, platform prop, or a Democratic platform prop. And this turns people off, especially young people. Um, and that's what the statistics all show. So freedom for religion, or freedom of religion, and freedom from from religion. Um, Now, in times of crisis, or perceived crisis, you know, people uh, do different things. Disaster creates conditions. They've studied this, particularly fitted to a rapid alteration of belief systems. Um, Disaster produces questioning, anxiety, suggestibility that are required for change. Only the wake, it's wake are people moved to abandon old values of the past. This is one of the reasons that you know, sometimes traumatic situations, um, actually every time you go through a traumatic situation, your brain becomes plastic. You're open to new ideas and ways of doing things. And, uh, and so although we often decry traumas and we try decry bad things people go through, um, <laughs> why is it that our teachers assign tests and examinations they want to traumatize us, so we really learn. <laughs> so <laughs> um, maybe that's not the reason. But these are the studies. Belief systems which, under non-disaster conditions, might be dismissed in a disaster we see sympathetic consideration for. Now, there are people in America, that, it's a very polarized nation and in the world today. How many would agree that people are somewhat polarized in America today? Hmm? What about in the world? And especially if you're watching the news and you partake of looking at all the disasters around the world or bad things, it re-traumatizes you and sensitizes you. And people begin protesting about things that, that, that's happening around the world that they, they've never been there, but they just see it on the news. And you've got marches all over every single city because now they're just vicariously being disastered, right? And I think that's happening in this nation and in the world today. I want to show you a couple of clips of different representatives. These are actually government representatives. I think this is a representative from Colorado. And uh, there's a group of people that say, hey, look, you know, things are so bad, and we think the answer is Christianity. We think the answer is, is, is Christianity, it's God, and, uh, well, let's just, you wanted to just hear some of these clips. So what do they think should happen? Okay, here's a, here's clip number one.
1: If Christian nationalism is something to be scared of, they're lying to you. And they're lying to you on purpose because that is exactly the temperature change that is happening in America today, and they can't control it. They can't control it, and that's what terrifies them the most. You see, if it, if we're going to label it Christian nationalism, This movement will actually be the movement that stops the school shootings. This will be the movement that stops the crime in our streets. This will be the movement that stops the sexual immorality and teaches children and brings them up in in traditional families and loving homes. This will be the movement that protects kids' innocence and nurtures them into responsible adults that grow up to be successful moms and dads wanting to pursue a family of their own. This will be the movement that finally does something about our debt because it's something that all of us should be ashamed of. It should have never happened. This will be the movement that cares about broken and lost communities, communities that are always forgotten about. Christians should never forget about those people, and we don't. So while the media is going to lie about you and label Christian nationalism, and they're probably going to to call it domestic terrorism, I'm going to tell you right now, they're the liars. And if anybody's a domestic terrorist, it's the radical left. They are the domestic terrorist. We could even say the Democrats are the domestic terrorists because they funded them and they burned down our city streets and rioted in 2020. So if we're going to put labels on people, we should put labels where they appropriately belong, not on Christians and not on people who love their country and want to take care of it.
0: Okay, so this is a (laughs) representative of government and um, is saying, you know, what we need is Christian nationalism. We need Christians to join with the government and then we'll reverse all the evils. I'll show you another one. by the way, how many of you found that somewhat interesting, if not alarming? Um, here's another one.
1: The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. It's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does.
0: All right. All right. <laughs> Okay, you came to Vespers thinking it was a peaceful, quiet time. Sorry, but. (laughs) So, this is another representative. I can't remember what state she's from. Colorado. Colorado. Okay, some of you know where she's from. And the idea there is again, uh, there needs to be church and state together. The idea of church and state separation, she says, is junk. is faulty reasoning, faulty history based on a stinking letter. We're going to come back to that stinking letter and smell it a little bit later and see if it really stinks. Um, and this is kind of a narrative that I'm hearing again and again, uh, an attack on, on separation of church and state um, and the idea of that church and state need to come together to solve our problems. This is the most recently minted uh, second to the second in line to the president after the vice president. This is Mike Johnson, the new representative or the new uh, Speaker of the House. And here's what he's saying. All right. Okay, so yeah. Indeed, saying. this common misunderstanding about the separation concept is, uh, is an important one. It's, it's one that's that's uh, useful for us to address. It. In fact, it's one of my favorite subjects. It's, it's a topic that I've debated, debated, and and written and taught university courses on for the for about 25 years, about or a quarter century. I really believe this is among the most misunderstood subjects in our entire culture. See, most people today who insist upon a rigid separation of church and state are unaware
1: that that phrase derives not from the Constitution itself, of course, but from the personal
0: letter. But Jefferson clearly did not mean that metaphorical wall was to keep religion from influencing issues of civil government. Sir? So, um, he's again, he's saying separation of church and state, it's a misnomer, he calls it. And, uh, this is not new. It started a few years ago with a drumbeat that's crescendoing now within a certain strident segment of, uh, of, of politicians. There's no such thing as, a, as separation of church and state. It's merely a figment of the in, imagination of infidels. And then James Dobson talked about this as well. Um, the Constitution was designed to perpetuate a Christian order so the idea of these folks is that America is a Christian nation. It was founded um, as a Christian nation, and it needs to function that way. And this is their reading of history. We're going we're to address that idea uh, tonight a little bit. Um, maybe one more clip. Are you ready just for one more clip? Uh, because I, I want to kind of give you the flavor of what people are saying, and then we'll talk about it. America's Constitution resides here in the National Archives. Its bill of rights protects freedoms such as speech, the press, and religion. It says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Today's prevailing opinion believes that means government and God can have nothing to do with each other, thus creating a high wall separating church and state. But what what the founding fathers who wrote it actually mean?
1: When the founders talked about separation state, they had a historical context that we really lacked. Reverend Eddie Hyatt, author of Pilgrims and Patriots. Church and state was merged together, and the church used the power of the state to enforce its doctrines and practices. He says certain governments used deadly force against
0: dissenters who wanted to worship in their own way. Those people were persecuted, uh, burned at the stake, some had their tongues cut out. The founders did not want that kind of Christianity. And so that's the context they have with separation of church and state. Okay, so what he's not saying is that actually those states that were doing that were being directed by religions. Mm-hmm. And he's, uh, he's not giving the whole picture there, but um, this is uh, within uh, certain Protestant denominations are saying this, but also... Um, the papacy has held this for a while back in 1991 john paul ii said that the ten commandments denounce among other things separation of church and state as being contradictory to the ten commandments and uh, this is a teaching that in the syllabus of errors by another uh, leader of the papacy in 1864 said Anathematized or damned are those that claim that every man is free to embrace and profess the religion he shall believe to be true, guided by the light of reason. And the church ought to be separated from the state and the state from the church. So Catholic teaching is that it's against um, uh, the idea of separation of church and state. The church has not the power of availing herself of forces or any direct or indirect temporal power. They didn't like that. We like a church that can have power, maybe be in control of military, maybe be in control of coercive means to make people do what's right. Um, So this is just a little bit of the milieu that we live in today. And not only that, the Supreme Court justices now largely are singing that same song, the Supreme Court Justice or the head of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, um, leading the charge in cases that speak of separating church and state, a Supreme Court giving religious schools access to state aid. That means government support to schools. By the way, this school here accepts no government support Um, It believes in separation of church and state and does not believe that having state funds um, is going to be helpful in the long run because that means that they can also influence what's done. Um, And so there was this idea of giving funding to a Lutheran school and then other schools and... I want to bring out a little nuance here, and then uh, and then I'm going to look at a couple of texts with you in closing tonight. American Catholic theologians look, took for granted that the American situation, which, like they're all saying, was against the union of church and state, was at best an accommodation, an hypothesis to be tolerated because Catholics would never be numerous enough to have their church officially united to the state. So the reason... Um, They liked separation of church and state. Originally, in some nuanced sense, was because they didn't have enough power to take over the state. But where Catholics were in the majority, the church should be united to the state. Where Catholics were in the minority, the church should be guaranteed freedom. And uh, this is uh, something interesting. So let me ask you a question. Are Catholics... In a minority or a majority now in government in America. Well, I looked it up in Congress. You have 55% are Protestant of different denominations, Baptist, Methodist, Anglican, Presbyterian, etc. Catholics, 29% of Congress. Um, and then of course, uh, Mormons, Orthodox. Christians, that would be Eastern Orthodox, uh, much less percentage. What about the Senate? Catholics, 27%, next largest would be would be uh, Protestants in the Senate. And then what about the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court is largely Catholic, one Jew and one Protestant. And so, uh, because they're in the ascendancy, what are they doing? They're saying church and state should be together now because they're in charge or they're able to maybe influence the government to actually do things that they want them to do. Okay, so that's the culture we live in, and it's stating... Many people are strident voices are saying separation of church and state is to be done away with. Now, most Americans don't believe that. More support than oppose separation of church and state. but it's shifting because of these these influences that you see. Uh, Madison, uh, James Madison, who I named one of my sons um, after, Opposed a Virginia bill long ago which taxed residents to support teachers of the Christian religion, condemning it as a signal of persecution that violates religious liberty. So remember the high court has now passed laws that say that funding can be given to schools or should be given to uh, parochial schools. Madison asserted that religion could not be forced on people and that state support actually corrupted religion. Government properly limited, rather, uh, would promote a civil society in which people of different faiths could maintain their beliefs according to their own um, consciences. He says, look, don't give money to churches. If they're successful enough in persuading people of what they believe, those people will support them. And so the idea was that the way that Christianity was to work was not through coercion, and not through force, but through persuasion. Does that make sense? That's the whole idea. Um, And he studied it out, of course, in the papal system of government and religion. Government and religion are in a manner consolidated, and that is found to be the worst of government. In most of the governments of the old world, the legal establishment of a particular religion and without or with very little toleration of others, makes it part of the political and civil organization. And there are few of the most enlightened judges who will maintain that the system has been favorable either to religion or to government. So you have this idea that Madison, he says, look, this is not good for the state, and it's not good for the church. <laughs> and so there needs to be a separation between church and church and state. The only thing the state is supposed to do is to just guarantee that religions are not at each other or taking over the state. And that's why America has more churches and more faiths and people come from all over the world to America because of that religious freedom. Does that make sense? And it's because of that separation that you have that robust faith. Now some of us who travel quite a bit um, in places where you have church, state, union, you essentially don't have any vibrant Christianity uh, in those, those areas. Or places that have church and state union uh, maybe persecute others. For instance, in most Muslim countries, there are people, if, if I was in Saudi Arabia giving a talk like this, I, would, I wouldn't have gotten through the first several sentences. I would have been taken away. If I was to open my Bible in North Korea, I could probably be killed. If I was to to study with someone else in Indonesia, I would be instantly persecuted, right? But in America, we have a system where, where persecution like that doesn't happen because freedom of conscience in terms of religion is allowed. Now, one of the things that you hear a lot from these folks and you heard from these representatives was the notion that a Christ, you know, America is a Christian nation and was founded as a Christian nation. And uh, you know, the United States uh, was founded that way. Now, let's just think about that phrase, United States. That means there were states that originally were not united, okay? And then they became united right so there was a time when they were not united and then they became united what were the names of those states before they became united colonies okay like give me some of the names one of them was uh massachusetts and that was congregational church and they supported the congregational ministers the state supported the ministers. Um, they didn't have all their finances together. It wasn't a federal government. There was just state governments. Virginia, named after the Virgin Queen, was um, the Anglicans, and they supported all of their minister from the ministers from the state government. Maryland, what do you suppose religion was there? Maryland. Catholics. And they would persecute other people that were not of their faith. So they would have to go somewhere else. And they were not united. Okay? What's that? Well, yeah. And Rhode Island uh, was different in that it said, look, we will not follow that same idea of making you believe something you don't believe. And that was where actually... This phrase, separation of church and state, was something that was said uh, by the founder of Rhode Island. And we'll come back to that later. And that's where Jefferson actually got his phrase, separation of church and state. And actually, uh, the founder of Rhode Island got his phrase from actually uh, something in English law that predated even that. And they got that from somewhere else, which I'll show you later, and that's Jesus Christ who said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and God the things that are God. In other words, separate the two. I'm beginning to see something interesting. So uh, freedom of conscience. For whom? Okay, here's our original colonies. That's why we have 13 colonies you know, stripes on our flag to remind us of these 13 original colonies. In early America, the Church of England had become entrenched in a position of power and was having an increasing influence over political affairs. Nine of the 13 colonies had established official state religions. And let's look at an example of Virginia, named after the Virgin Queen. Settlers would attend morning and even prayer every day, and those who shall often and willingly absent themselves from these divine services would be punished according to the law. For the first offense, settlers already living on the edge of starvation would lose a day's provision of rations. For a second offense, they would be whipped, and for a third, they would be sentenced to serve in ocean going galleys for six months. So they had to go out and hard labor on a ship. Fines, jails, flogging, sentences, or exile or death were commonplace before federal guarantees of religious liberty began to take effect. So when you hear people saying, we need to go back to the time of the Puritans, back to the time of the original colonies, that was a time of religious persecution. It was not a time of religious freedom. It was not a time of separation of church and state. It it does not represent the United States of America. It represents America before there was a United States. How many understand what I'm saying? So um, Thomas Jefferson writing to the Baptist and Danbury, Danbury Baptist Association. Now here comes this letter that the one representative called a stinking letter, and the other said, it's not part of the Constitution. Okay. Um, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies between man and his God, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that of the whole American people which declare that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So there's that phrase they don't like, but he's actually doing what with that phrase? He's actually summarizing that First Amendment, right? Make no law respecting an establishment of a religion. If you give money from the government to one religious school system predominantly, and not the others, what is that doing? It's establishing that religion. So um, uh, this is why it's a problematic for the government to giving money. And of course, the Christian nationalists want the government to only give money to Christians. Okay? Don't like the Muslims, don't like the Buddhists, don't like the atheists. No, there's no place for them. And <laughs> so that's what Christian nationalism is. But Jefferson and the, uh, those who were writing the Constitution and the Bill of Rights eventually, they said there needs to be a wall of separation between the church and the state. Um, and this is where that phrase comes from. So, uh, Madison, um, strongly guarded... As is the separation between religion and government in the Constitution of the United States, the danger of encroachment by ecclesiastical bodies may be illustrated by precedents already furnished in their short history. So, in other words, he's looking even at the states and he says, look, this danger of religion coming into government is bad, and also government coming into religion, but that's why there had to be a separation. It doesn't mean that you can't serve in government. It doesn't mean that you can't use principles that you believe in. But you have to ground them on something other than saying the Bible says so. And by the way, uh, Mike Johnson, when he was sworn in, brought his Bible and made a big point of that. And, you know... Um, that may seem refreshing, but for some it's chilling, especially if you're not a Christian in America. Um, every man conducting himself as a good citizen and being accountable to God alone for his religious opinions ought to be protected and worshipping the deity according to the dictates of his own conscience, said George Washington, or not worshipping anybody, if that's what his conscience says. Now coming to Roger Williams from Rhode Island where we get this idea of separation of church and state played out for the first time on American soil um, in a state setting. Roger Williams spoke of the desirability of a hedge of separation between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world. See, separation its the same kind of thing that Jefferson would later say. A decent distance between the church and the state, he maintained, would keep the purity of the church intact and safe from the corrupting influence of government. Williams reached his conclusions about the urgent need to separate church and state not because he did not care about the future of Christianity, but because he sometimes appeared to care about nothing else. Williams' main concern was always the purity of the church. If someone's giving you money, can that be uh, something that influences you unduly? Could it be that you're doing the right thing because you want the money and not because you really believe that? So that, that's why there had to be, in his mind, a separation. Leave the matter of religious teaching to the family altar, the church, and private schools Supported entirely by private con- contributions. Keep the church and state forever separate. This was Ulysses Grant, and he understood this. Um, I've got a whole list of these statements of early uh, presidents that understood this concept and, and talked about it. You know, Now, there is what's called a 501c3 status But you only can maintain that if in your pulpit you're not promoting a particular party or another party. And you're not politicizing your pulpit, which is happening in all kinds of churches, which are just shills for either the Democratic or Republican party. And uh, the Adventist church is not like that. You can be any uh, political stripe you want to be, but we're not going to bring it into the pulpit here and say one party is to be preferred over another, or this or that. That's not the place of the pulpit. Does that make sense? So, um, And by the way, that's what I'm thankful for at Thanksgiving. I'm actually thankful for religious freedom for everybody. Not just for me, but for everybody. Amen. That's what I'm thankful for. Um, I, I, I don't like persecution. Of even people I don't agree with I don't like that I don't like people to be bullied beat up and different things because of their beliefs even if I don't agree with them right Mm -hmm. now if their beliefs and their different things begin to infringe on mine and they come across mine I don't like that right but that's what the state is supposed to do. Say no, don't you can't do that to each other. That's what the state's supposed to do, and that's what makes America great. Um, in 1776, the Virginia adopted a Declaration of Rights that proclaimed, in those certain terms, all men are equally entitled to uh, free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience. That was 1776 in Virginia. It wasn't until 1798 that all the other states came along. So you really don't have a United States of America until the Bill of Rights is all passed and ratified. And that's like 1798. And that's when France sent that big statue of what? Liberty. So when people talk about wanting to go back to the founding of America, listen very closely. Because if they're talking about any time before all of the states united around that Bill of Rights, that was a time of tyranny and religious persecution in America. And what they're asking you to do is to go back to that time period. I'm not interested in it. Are you interested in it? I'm not interested in that. And the Seventh day Adventist Church has always stood for that. Well, that's one of the reasons I like being a Seventh day Adventist, actually. Congress shall make no law establishing religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, nor shall the rights of conscience be infringed. Now, let me just uh, read a couple things and give you a couple texts, and I will close up tonight. Um, the people of the United States have been a favored people. Well, let's stop there for a minute. Why would you say they've been a favored people? Because of liberty of conscience. Okay, I just went through that. Because of the way things are set up, they've been favored with immigrants from around the world that come to escape religious persecution. And they have had the wealth of nations, so to speak, the brightest and the best that have come here. And they came here to escape religious freedom. And some of the, you know, like, let's take, for instance, Warren Buffett. He's known as a financial guru. He makes, He's a brilliant guy. You know what his history is? He's a Huguenot. <laughs> he's of Huguenot extraction, which means <laughs> they got kicked out of France because of religious you know, intolerance. And they were all being killed. And he came here. Um, There's all kinds of people of different religions and ethnicities and backgrounds that come to America, and our school here is very diverse. I love that. I love that. Um, And I love the fact that people can come from all over, and this is one of the reasons why U.S. has been a favored people. But when they restrict um, religious liberty which I think is what these people I showed the clips would love to do. They're not giving liberty to others. I'm even the speaker, he got up. I know he's well-intentioned. How many of you have ever done something that you thought was good, but it ended up being bad? I'm not questioning motives. How many of you have ever done something you thought was good, but it ended up bad? I remember once I was rock climbing with Carl Wilcox. And... We were rock climbing together in Little Cottonwood Canyon, and uh, Carl was like six foot seven, and back then he was very young, and so was I, and I had never met him before. I met him at the church, and we were going out rock climbing, and we go up, and he goes over this overhang. So there's this overhang, he climbs around, he climbs over the top, and he goes, "Okay, I'll tell you what to do." And I'm I've never rock climbed before in my life, going up along, and you know he says to me, "Now don't." Don't, uh, don't lean into the rock. No. Lean out. Lean out and just trust this, uh, this, the way your body is pushing with your feet against the rock, but you're hanging out like this. Look, it's totally unnatural because you want to get close to something solid, right? Because <laughs> you think, man, I, I need a piece of the rock. So finally, I'm going up there and I'm freaking out. I'm like, like this, and he's yelling at me. and, And I go, fine, I couldn't take it. I get close to the rock. What happened? My feet slipped, and I fell, and I'm swinging up there 500 feet above the ground, and Wilcox pulls me in. So if you have any problems with me, it's because of Wilcox. He saved my life. So, but my idea, the idea was this. I thought it was good. It seemed good. And I think, truly, these representatives and whatnot, they think it's good what they're doing. They think it would be great if everybody could be told what to do by the Christians in charge of the government. The only thing is, they didn't read history. Okay, They didn't read history from the time of Constantine to the 18th century. They just missed all that history which shows again and again and again that if you do it the way they're suggesting, it obliterates not only the state, but also the church. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have the United States. How many of you are with me? Mm -hmm. So I'm not questioning their motive. I'm just saying, "Eh, it's not true. (laughs) Because history shows you that again and again and again. So restrict religious liberty. Number two, surrender Protestantism. What is Protestantism? This is freedom of conscience is what Protestantism is. And I wish I had time to show you the historical documents of that. But this whole idea of Luther, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. I'm not going to do what you say. I'm going to say what God says. And priesthood of all believers. You can do... What God is telling you to do in His Word. Now, Luther, you know, and Luther and the um, Protestant reformers, they didn't fully understand separation of church and state. (laughs) They persecuted the Anabaptists, they persecuted all these different groups. Um, And it, it was not until the American experiment, they called it the experiment. Could we just have people living all together according to the dictates of their conscience? Nobody thought America would survive. It has survived. And it flourished because of allowing that. And it's the most robust religious uh, country in the world uh, because of that. So if they restrict religious liberty, if they surrender Protestantism, which is what these folks are asking us to do, if they give countenance to popery, now what? What did, what did the papacy say? We don't like separate. We we don't like separation of church and state unless we're in a minority. Then we like it, but when we're in the majority, we're going to take it over. Is that what's happening? Did I just show you that? Now that they're in control of the Supreme Court, what are they doing? They're attacking separation of church and state. Now that they're the majority in the House and the Senate, what are they doing? okay hello following me that's what they're doing and this is uh, this is the problem. the result will be what fullness of guilt, national apostasy <laughs> and national ruin. Now, now, now some people think the deficit <laughs> and all this all this kind of stuff is coming from from you know, unwise financial decisions and whatnot. But I'm telling you, <laughs> if you decide the government has to fund you know, all the schools and all this kind of stuff, how many think that could break the bank? Yeah? And how do you think that the foreign policy of the United States, if it tries to fund wars and, uh, that are based on papal doctrines? I won't get into that tonight, but I could. Did you realize that the largest majority of Congress and the Senate, they want to fund these wars? Let's take, the, for instance, Israel. And why are they funding that war in Israel? Because they have a prophetic scenario that says that you know, there's supposed to be a temple rebuilt, and there's going to be a rapture and the Antichrist then is going to arise in the last seven years of history in Israel. The church will be raptured, but then the Jews, some of them can be converted, and then the temple will be rebuilt, and the Antichrist will be revealed. Where did that teaching come from? It's not the Bible. Okay? It's a papal teaching. Why did the papacy teach that? Because they didn't like the fact that all the reformers were saying they were the Antichrist. So they said, let's put it into the future. And by the way, (laughs) that's where, but follow the money. The money for foreign policy decisions and allocation of arms and all that kind of stuff is based on theological principles. And I'm not just saying that, I've read that in at least five or six news articles this last week where people who actually think about that kind of stuff see that happening. But I just want to point out, this is an amazing statement. (laughs) When these things start to happen, what will happen? National ruin. National ruin. Okay, so let me end with some Bible text. Adventists have historically supported separation of church and state. And why? Number one, because God allows freedom of choice in matters of faith, and so should we. Choose you this day who you will serve. If it be God, if it be the Amorites God, if it be this the gods on the other side of the river, follow them. But if it be the Lord, follow him. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In other words, it's freedom of choice. How many of you are glad for freedom of choice? If God gives freedom of choice, how many think we should give freedom of choice? Number two, Christ separated the two when he said... This is church and state. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. This is the text that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison pointed to when they talked about a wall of separation. Actually, um, the Jews didn't like Christ, and his disciples didn't even like him because they wanted to have a nationalistic takeover of Rome, and when he wouldn't do that, Judas turned against him, tried to get all the disciples against him. But Jesus, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, my kingdom is not of this world, else I would fight. And if it were, his servants would be fighting, John 18, 36. So um, Christ was not into uh, trying to make a, a Christian nationalism in ancient Israel, um, he just didn't do it. Number four, when some of his disciples attempted to use coercive force, what did Jesus do? He reminded them that his mission was not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. How do you remember when Peter cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Malchus? What did Jesus say? Great, cut off his other ear too. Let's jab him in. What did, what did Jesus say? He says, You know what? You don't know what spirit you have. He reached out and healed. This is medical missionary work. He healed the guy's ear. <laughs> this was the servant of his arch enemy. So he, at the end of his life, just before he's dying, what's he do? He fights for the freedom (laughs) of someone who's his enemy, and he actually heals him. By the way, how many think that the guy whose ear was healed used it to maybe listen to Jesus after that? He that has an ear, (laughs) let him hear Right? So, this is a very powerful concept. And then finally, the religion of Christ is not to be tied to any one nation, but to be preached to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And that's what the Adventist Church has been called to do. We're not Americans, we're not Mexicans, we're not Brazilians. We're not Italians. We're Adventists. Amen. And we have a global mission. The kingdom of the world, you know, the meek shall inherit Palestine. Is that what the Bible says? The meek shall inherit the earth. We have a broad scope. We have a everlasting gospel. We have a global message. And uh, It's not to be sidetracked by Christian nationalism is the point. So I'm thankful this Thanksgiving season for actually the teaching of the separation of church and state. And I've shown you why. How many of you see some value to what I shared with you. And you may have some questions, I'm happy to try and answer your questions um, or observations that you have. But um, again, I think the people calling for this, I can understand why they're doing that. But history has shown that's not the right approach. Um, and. Our idea is we must persuade. We need to be more deeply converted so that we're persuasive in the way we live. And we're not going to try and get in control through power and coercion, but through love and persuasion. I'm going to be committed to allowing your life to be fully surrendered to God so you can actually... Be a person who lives the golden rule and draws people to consider Christ and his cause as a result of your conversion, not as a result of your coercion. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you tonight for America um, that has stood for religious freedom, the very first freedom. And thank you that the states actually united and as a result had a favored status because of freedom of conscience. As we see problems in lives around us and even our own lives, we may have the conviction that um, others need to believe like we do, but May they believe like we do, not because of coercion or manipulation, because they actually see the fruits of the Spirit, and they're drawn by your mercy as revealed in our lives and through our lives. In your grace, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more.